Well, we are going to take uh, this uh, week, we're going to have uh, a couple of things going on. Uh, first of all, today, Palm Sunday, as we enter into Holy Week, we're going to be talking a little bit about that. On, on Friday, what is Good Friday, uh, this is typically a time when we would gather, but because of so many of the uncertainties, uh, we made a decision a little while back to do that online. And so there will be a special online uh, service, Good Friday, at 7 o'clock that I would encourage you, if you're able to, to be a part of. Uh, during that, we're going to be doing communion, and so if you want to be a part of that online uh, at your own home, make sure you get the elements for communion. We're expecting that to be between 45 minutes and an hour long. And then next Sunday, Easter, we'll be celebrating the resurrected king, the empty tomb, uh, and be uh, talking about the fact that Jesus is soon returning, right? The second advent. That's what we wait on right now. And so this is an exciting time. And, and many refer to it as Holy Week. All right, and so day one would be today, and this is the triumphant entry. And so if you've you know spent any time in church, you're familiar with this idea that uh, this particular day in history uh, was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. It was prophesied in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine: "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble." and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so there was a prophecy long before Jesus ever showed up that the king of kings would ride into Jerusalem. And this was a prophecy that, that I don't have time to break down right now because of the content that we've got that, that fell down to the day, to the day the prophecy was fulfilled that the Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so coming into Jerusalem on a donkey was unlike any king, anything that you would think a king would do. And then we go over to Matthew 21, verse 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I want you just to imprint this right here on your heart for just a moment because we're going to begin with this phrase and we're going to end with this phrase in just a moment. This is significant. So, so Jesus is coming in. He is on a donkey, right? And he is being praised by the people on the street. They are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So he's received like a king by the people on the street, but completely ignored by the people in the temple. This is important, right? So day two, uh, so day one, uh, as the day is ending, Jesus recognizes what's happening in the temple. It says that he retires to Bethany. Uh, we have talked a little bit about this recently, but uh, Lazarus and his family, uh, uh, Martha and Mary, they actually lived in this little area of Bethany. So scholars believe that what happened is at the end of this day, Jesus saw what was happening in the temple and he actually went and rested probably at their home because he was close to them. And day two, he returns to the temple and he throws out the money changers, right? So I'm just giving you some perspective. These are Bible stories that we get all the time, but I don't think we always kind of pack them into this time frame. And so he comes in, he throws out the money changers in the temple and he begins to teach and the people are amazed, right? 
Uh, day three, after uh, he has done this, he is making his way back through uh, to the temple and the religious leaders attempt an arrest. They do not like the fact that Jesus has presented himself as being a religious leader. They don't recognize it. They don't see him as a religious leader and they want him to be gone. And the scripture says that he evades arrest. And this is where I want to pause for the meat of the message today on what 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 scholars refer to as his final sermon, all right? So Jesus gives one final sermon, and he gives it to the people, but it's directed at a different group. And here in Matthew 23, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat is how he begins this sermon. So he's going to be talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. So who are the scribes? Well, the scribes are the writers of the word. They're not the originators, but they're the ones that that take the copies of the word and they make copies of it so that people can have access to the written word. The scribes are the ones that are are, are so intimately familiar with the word, right, to a degree that they are the ones that should know it forward and backwards because they have committed their lives to just simply writing out manuscript copies of the scripture. So he, he, he's going to, he's talking to the scribes and to the Pharisees. Uh, these are the separatists. This is really what the word Pharisee means. And so they were middle-class businessmen and leaders in the synagogue. And, and this is important for us to understand. This was a group of religious leaders who were not only like, like in the sense like pastoring local, a local church or something, but they were very engaged in their community and very engaged in creating wealth for themselves. So the Pharisees established the rabbinical system. So when we hear about rabbis, that whole system was established by the Pharisees and it following the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, he leaves, he prophesies that the temple is going to be destroyed. It's destroyed in 70 AD. And, and this system becomes the the complete and total system following that, right? And so the idea of rabbis is, is becomes ex the exclusive form of structure for the Jewish people following the destruction of the temple. And so the Pharisees are the ones that have put this system together. Now, go to verse 3, and this is Jesus. He's, he's talking about them being on the seat of Moses, so they have authority. And he says, so do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. So Jesus' final sermon, he's come in, the, the, the people in the streets, they've acknowledged that, you know, he's, he's Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and, and now he's talking about this group of leaders within the temple, within the church, and he says, look, the things that they're saying you should listen to but you need to be careful and not to necessarily do what they do. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees do not practice what they preach. Now, this inside of society is, is an acceptable philosophy. How many of you have ever had somebody, you know, tell you, do as I say, not as I do, right? Maybe you even had a parent who did that, right? Um, uh, my, my, my mom and dad did not parent that way, but they had a few exceptions. I, I remember when I started driving, my dad would, you know, 
constantly be on me about speeding. And I would say, dad, but you speed everywhere. And he says, when you pay for your insurance, you can drive how you want to drive. Right. Okay. Right. So he says, right. Do what I'm telling you to do. Don't do what I do. And, and this becomes this overarching philosophy, if you will, that is presented from the Pharisees and the scribes now who are partnering with him to the people. It's like, well, we know exactly what you're supposed to. We know what the word says, but, but we don't necessarily do it the way that it is written. And Jesus says, listen to what they're saying, but be very careful. Their actions are not lining up with it. Why, what, what is he communicating here at the beginning of this, of this sermon? He says that he's telling us that God's word is true, right? God's word is true. It's truth. He says that, that it might be people who are, who are disrespectful, who are, who are not walking right with God, but if they're quoting the Word of God, it does not discount the Word of God, right? Just because they don't line up with it and because they don't practice what it is that they read when they read Scripture does not negate the, the, the reality of the truth of the Word of God. And, and I, man, this was so good for me, and I hope this will be good for you. Like We are, we are let down a lot by ministers, and, and this year has really been like, a, like a, 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 a sting when it comes to that. Hearing about the testimonies of, of ministers who their lives were not lining up with the things that they were teaching, the things that they were saying. And God says, like, this is a reality. I'm going to, I'm going to rebuke the scribes and the Pharisees in just a moment. It's what he's going to get to in this sermon. But he's telling the people who are also there, he says, listen, the word of God is true and you just need to be very, very careful that you make sure that the things that are being said are being fulfilled by the people who are saying them, okay? Right? And so he's going to pull some parallels now in this, in this sermon that will go back to his first sermon. And so if you'll remember back in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus comes out and he begins in this sermon to lay out the, the, a way of blessing in our lives. And this is his final sermon where he's going to talk to the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and he's going to, there's, there's some parallels that are being laid out right here between the blessings and then the warnings that he's going to give. And, and so that's what I want to look at. So we're going to skip down to verse 13 here in Matthew chapter 23, and we're going to look at these parallels. It, it's pretty amazing how, how Jesus connects the dots uh, in, his, in his final sermon to, to those of, of his first words, right? So he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I'm going to go ahead and just, we're going to address this word hypocrite because he's going to use this a fair amount in this sermon. And I, I just, I got to tell you, like there's this, there's this, there's this uh, compulsion that you feel as a pastor to, to always be really nice in everything that you say, right? And then when you actually get into the word and you, you begin to look at, man, there are times where even Jesus didn't have a really like happy word for people, right? Like, like the, he, he's coming at them right now. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're ever like hearing a word and, and not to say I don't get it wrong, because I, I promise I, I will get it wrong, but, but always ask yourself, is it wrong or, or am I just feeling some conviction, right? Because I think our culture can real quickly turn it into, well, I didn't want to hear that, so it shouldn't have been said. Again, 
testifying right here. I'll get it wrong sometimes and I'll say it wrong. I'm not saying that I don't. So don't, this isn't an overarching statement. But also, sometimes the, the conviction of the word of God is just what it is. And so Jesus is coming at the religious leaders, okay, in, in, the, in these statements. And he's using this word hypocrites. And I thought this was fascinating in the Greek. It is an actor under an assumed character playing a part. So the term hypocrite ha- had this like really deep philosophical meaning when, when it was written by, by uh, the New Testament authors, a lot different than today. Like we would just go, you hypocrite, like you're worthless, you liar. But this was like, this is almost poetic, you know? It was like, ah, you're playing the part of a character in a great story, but you are not that character. And so when Jesus is calling them hypocrites, like, like he's really playing into the, the, the kind of the, the, the entertainment of the day. This is really fascinating. I'll, I'll pause on a little rabbit trail for you. When we started the church, uh, we had met this guy, and he told me one day, uh, uh, I, he, we were talking, and he found out I was a pastor, and he was like, oh, City Church, I've, I've heard of City Church. And I was like, oh, where do you go to church? He said, well, I'm not going anywhere right now. I said, you ought to come sometime. And he goes, no, 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 I'm looking for a church more like, the way Jesus did church. And I was like, cool, like, what, do you, what does that look like? And he was like, you know, pews and stained glass windows. And I was like, well, we definitely don't have pews and stained glass windows. I didn't go any deeper with, this, with, with him to, to let him know that neither did Jesus when he was doing ministry. Uh, one of the things that Jesus capitalized on was that the people loved stories, right? And so listening to great orators, people who would come out and communicate, that was, that was, a, that was a thing they would do. And so it was not uncommon for them to go onto the hillside and somebody come out and, and play a part and act out a you know, some type of, of little monologue and, and, and the people to, to, to come and hear that and be entertained by it. So what Jesus does is Jesus uses that when he uses the, uh, the parables, right? He comes out and he tells these stories and it draws a crowd in. And then he, what he does is he uses the modern way of entertaining to communicate a truth so that he can present to them the gospel that'll transform their lives. That's the model in which we use here at church when we have lights and, and technology. We're, we're trying to draw people in who are disconnected from God and give them an opportunity to come in and then hear the gospel presentation, right? So the idea of hypocrites, right, was the idea that when I heard, when I heard somebody, an orator giving some type of monologue, I knew that they weren't talking about themselves. And so this is what he says. He says, you are you, the scribes, the Pharisees, you're the religious leaders, and you are the hypocrites, those that are just playing a part on the side of a hill, right? And he says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven. You close it up, right? So you make it to where the kingdom of heaven is not something that people can enter into. And so you possess all the resources others need, but prevent people from receiving, and so just, just every time that we come into the, the scribes and the Pharisees for the remainder of this sermon, I just want you to think that this is, who Je- this is what Jesus is calling them. He's calling them liars. He's calling them people who are deceivers. And he's going to go really hard after them in just a moment. But look at the parallel when we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
right? So an actor, somebody who comes out and plays a part, right? There takes a certain amount of confidence to do that. That's why so many of us would say, oh, no, 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 I don't like to, to do public speaking. Like, I don't want to get up in front of everybody and speak. I'm nervous to do that, right? There's a certain amount of, 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 of gusto, of pride that somebody has to have to be able to get up and do that. And, and so he's calling them hypocrites, right? Because they have everything that they need, plenty of resources, all of the knowledge. And what do they do? They Put, they position it in a way that it prevents people from gaining access to the kingdom. But earlier, Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes and Pharisees believe they know it all, and so do the people they minister to, yet they will not see the kingdom of heaven. It is the one who understands just how little they know that will see the kingdom of heaven. You see, that, that language of being poor in spirit is, is the exact same type of language that we would use if we were talking about economics. Poverty, right? Financial poverty. What am I ready for? I'm ready to receive something. I need to receive because I don't have enough. So when he talks about being poor in spirit, it means that I understand that I do not have any wealth when it comes to spiritual things. Instead, I am ready to receive. So those that are ready to receive in their spirit are the ones that are going to be blessed, right? with access to the kingdom of heaven, but it's the scribes and the Pharisees who, sh who have all the access because they know the word so intimately that are instead manipulating it and playing a part. And therefore, what are they creating? They're creating manipulators who are playing a part. And so when, when we are at a, a place where we feel like we have all of the answers, that should be a sign that that's a dangerous place to be, right? Um, uh, I have some friends who are in the medical field, and I'll make a phone call, you know, right? You got that little ailment, you don't want to go to the doctor, so you call somebody in the medical field, and you're like, hey, I was hoping to ask you a question, right? Uh, I've got this itch, you know? And, and, and when you tell them that I was reading online, almost every time they laugh, right? I went to WebMD, and they just burst out laughing out loud, right? Because the idea is that because I have access to information, I know, therefore, what I am talking about, right? And so you walk up to the medical professional who has spent years and years of their lives not only studying but working with people, hands-on, experiencing, and you go, well, I read online that it's blah, 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 right? Like, like that is not a position you want to be in if your body is needing help, right? When you go to a doctor, you want to think that the doctor knows more than you do, and so he's making that comparison with the scribes and the Pharisees saying, like, you guys have spent your lives studying the word. You should know the word, and you're not actually leading people where they need to go. But there is a group of people who know they need to be led. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the use of, of, of the word poor here, it indicates a position of readiness to receive. Now, we just left verse 13. We go to verse 15. Why do we do that? Well, if you're reading in any modern translation, you're going to notice that verse 14 is actually not in chapter 23. I'm going to touch on this briefly because I always want to talk about discrepancies when we look at Scripture. So when the King James was put together, it was translated out of the manuscripts they had access to, okay? Uh, and I, I know people get all hung up on, on King James and ESV and NIV, King James translated out of the manuscripts they had access to. It was not until 100 years later that we got access to some 
even older manuscripts. And when we had the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found and a number of other manuscripts, one thing that became consistently clear is that none of the oldest texts that we have have verse 14 in them. It was not until 400 AD that we have a manuscript that has for the first time verse 14 in it. Now, you would say, so does that make the, 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 you know, for instance, the King James something that's bad? It does not because that verse is actually found in other writings, okay? So we'll find it, we'll find Mark writing almost word for word the exact same thing. What they think is, is that because it fit into the thought, it was brought over, okay? So in fairness, verse 14, most scholars today say is not actually in the original canon if you have a Bible that has verse 14 in it, you probably have a note, if you don't, on, it takes you down to it. Verse 14, just not accepted as being part of this particular sermon as Matthew is recording it. So, on to verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, using this word again, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In case you're wondering, this is really strong language again. Traveling was dangerous, right? Across land and sea. Just give you some perspective. You did not have a vehicle to drive to the airport to hop on the Delta Airlines and get over to that nation that you were trying to get to across the water. No, what you had to do was go on foot, maybe horseback for part of it, and then you went to a ship. And I, I read that something like 30% of ships successfully crossed water, right? So 70% it ended up in some type of wreck, right? So it was not uncommon for people to be shipwrecked. This is one of the reasons that they traveled so close to the shores is because the, the ships were just not reliable. So he says, listen, you will put your life in great jeopardy to go and to make a proselyte, right? Notice he doesn't say to share the gospel. He says to go and make a proselyte. A proselyte is a convert, okay? And then he says, he says, and what you do is you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. And, and so what is that a picture of? Well, the word hell here is uh, in, the, in the Greek, and you'll hear people who will get into debates around, you know, what hell is, what hell is not. Jesus is making reference to the Valley of Hinnom. This is a place historically that, that the Jews, when they were engaging in uh, 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 worship with other gods, right? They were creating this new religion at one point that they were actually participating in the sacrifice of children. And so this Valley of Hinnom, in essence, became a dump because so many children had been sacrificed by fire there that nobody wanted to live there, right? And so it became a place for the homeless, for the sick. It was a place where there were trash heaps that would start burning and they would burn and burn and burn because there would be so, such long uh, extents between rains. And so there's just a, a, an image here of a place where sacrifice was made to another God, where lives were taken. Um, and, and so it's the Valley of Hinnom. And, and this child sacrifice, I just want to touch on here, is really significant. And I think uh, last week when Caleb filled in for me, uh, he talked about this for a moment, but Psalm 139 gives us clear indication that not only does God carefully 
design and formulate each and every one of us. He begins that process before we are even in our mother's wombs. And this is why we are going to be people who are a catalyst for life, why we're going to be a voice for life, right? Now, with that comes all the responsibilities of having people who are willing to adopt and help those that are in need. That's a reality, I understand. But life matters. And so what was happening was other cultures did not see value in children, and so they would sacrifice them literally in fire. And so what is he saying? He's telling them that, 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 that they create converts that are twice the, look at the language, sons of hell that they are, right? So what is that? They have sacrificed themselves in the fire, children of fire. You make people so that they will walk themselves into the fire. That's, that's, that's crazy language if you think about that for a moment. Like he's saying that people that are supposed to be building the church are actually convincing people that they're honoring God by themselves, making themselves ready to be burned as a sacrifice. And so the scribes and Pharisees will go to any measure, but what are they called to do, right? They'll, they'll, they'll put themselves, they'll put their lives in danger, but is that what they're called to do? Is that what you and I are called to do? Well, here in Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So you'll go into great, you'll go to great lengths to make a convert, but Jesus says that it's those that mourn that are comforted. Now, we have this idea of lamenting, and this has been really common in the last year. This, you'll hear this on, on, on different websites, different ministers talking about lamenting with those who are hurting, and that's actually not what uh, Jesus is talking about when he talks about those who mourn. This is specifically tied to the idea of recognizing the devastation of sin on the world. This is a type of mourning that takes place when we begin to understand that sin, it just is destructive. Like sin doesn't work out. And so, so that mourning that he's talking about, that is when you, when you come to the place where you're like, oh man, like this, this, is, this is devastating. Like, like it might be okay today, but long term, this is going to hurt the world. This is going to hurt those that I care about. And so when we come to that conclusion, to that position and we begin to mourn, right? He says that that awareness will bring comfort, right? So comforted now by the comforter. So it's an active thing that is going to happen right now. So we see the kingdom of heaven that we'll step into as a future thing. We move to the next verse, and he says that as we begin to recognize that sin is on us, on the world, and that it's a devastating force, instead of drawing people to be sinners, right, for our own benefit, instead he says that when you begin to realize the devastation of sin, you will then yourself be comforted. And the comforter, of course, is the Holy Spirit. So because an awareness of the serious nature of sin is a difficult place to come to. And when you get there, it's a difficult place to be. And you need a comforter. And this is that whole imagery, right, of becoming a believer, is that I begin to recognize that I cannot save myself. I am in need of a Savior. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus is condemning the scribes and Pharisees for being proud and full of zeal. Uh, in one verse, we go back, and what is he doing? He, he's commending the people who are aware of the gravity of sin. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the 
earth. Again, this is something that's happening here and now. So meekness is patience in the reception of injuries. So this, this, this idea of meekness was actually a really popular term uh, during this time that, that Matthew's writing this. It was something that Aristotle addressed. And so because Aristotle's writings were so popular, uh, they were using this term meekness to actually play against that. So Aristotle said it leads to a defect. So somebody who is meek, somebody who is willing to be gentle in the face of difficulty, trials, persecution, physical harm, you're willing to be gentle because you understand a, a greater work at play. He, he says, Aristotle says, you're willing to do that that's a defect in your character, and Christ says that it is a Christian virtue. And so these are really intentional words that we're seeing here. Scribes and Pharisees, man, you guys, will. there is no extent you won't go to, and in the end, all you do is create people to be sacrificed. But man, let me just, let me just tell you that, that if you will see sin as devastating, you'll be comforted. And if you will Sometimes walk through seasons where it feels like you are yourself being injured, but you will do so with gentleness, this idea of meekness, right? You will inherit the earth. So scribes and Pharisees face down dangers, but Christ calls us to be aware of sin and gentle in the midst of attack. And ultimately, we get to be comforted by the comforter, the Holy Spirit at work in our lives Go back to Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You know, it's interesting that when Jeff got up here, he talked for a moment about, vow, about making public vows and public commitments. I, I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus is addressing the fact that the Pharisees, who remember I, I, I told you that they were middle-class businessmen who not only wanted to see the success of the, 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 the faith, right? They wanted to make sure that people were doing what they were supposed to do, but they, they were also people who wanted success in their own lives. And so you can see here the things that they will make uh, public uh, confessions over. Jesus is going like, you want to do it over the altar, the things that are on the altar. You want to talk about the temple, which is supposed to be laden in gold or the gold that's in the treasury. Everything that you are publicly making a profession over has to do with wealth, right? And, 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 and instead, it's supposed to be about people. And so they made vows tethered to riches because that is what they longed for. And so if you are going to make a vow, right, then what is it, what, whatever, you, whatever you bring into that vow speaks greatly to the, the position of your heart. And, and so when we talk about a wedding, right, and we're talking about 
being connected to a person, I think this, this kind of makes sense because there's a moment of clarity, I think, when people are getting married in their hearts because they are in love with this person. You do not hear a, 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 a groom speaking to his bride in his vows going, uh, I solemnly make a commitment to be yours as long as you have money in your bank account and you're providing me with a really nice ride because then I'll know you love me right? I mean, if we heard that, we would be like, that's nuts. But yet, that's exactly how the Pharisees and the scribes were actually training people. Like, listen, if you're going to make a vow, you need to be tethering it to the abundance. And yet, nowhere in Scripture is that actually instructed of us. Now, so there is no room in the gospel for praying to or by anything or anyone. When we are going to make vows, we make them among each other in community to hold each other accountable. And whether that is dedicating a child, like Jeff mentioned earlier, so that our, the people that I love and care about you know, are, know that I want them to know the Lord and be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that you are invited to pour into my children and call them out. I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, listen, there are people in our church and they are spread out all over this city. And, and I, I joke with them. I'm like, so if you ever think you're going to sneak off somewhere and do something, I promise you one of them's going to see you. And they love me enough. They're going to pick up the phone and go, Jim, you know what I just saw? And let me tell you, I love you enough that I'm going to be in my car driving over to where you're at, right? And, and, it, and it really is lighthearted because I am blessed. My children are, are, are good, right? They're good natured and they, they, they love us. We have a happy family. But it is also a reality that I am walking in community with people. And I feel like that there is a commitment among us that we would always pick up the phone and call each other if we saw detriment among ourselves. And, and so the idea of being in some type of public community vow is something that is really important Jesus is calling out the way that they go about doing this, right? Why? Because the thing that they're hungry for, the thing that they want is not more of Jesus. They want wealth and riches for themselves. Now, can I tell you, Jesus will absolutely provide your needs in your life, right? This is not a, a public statement that well, what Jesus really wants is for all of us to be, you know, destitute. No, 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 no. But that is, an that is an overflow, like God's provision in your life, making sure that you have the things that are needed, making sure that your family's taken care of, all of those things are, are secondary, right, to the gospel. They're not before, they don't stand on top of the gospel. They're just an overflow of who Christ is. Now, watch this. In Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus had said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Notice he doesn't say those who hunger and thirst for wealth will be satisfied, for righteousness will be satisfied. So wealth will not bring satisfaction, but righteousness will. And so you can tether all of your hopes and dreams and all of your prayers and everything to some money and some, and some, some type of financial fulfillment, but, but those are not things that are going to honor God, right? The pursuit of righteousness will honor God and put you in a position where you're in right relationship with him. And I mean, the scripture says things like, what kind of father, when a son asks for bread, gives him stones, right? So the Lord will meet your needs. That is, that is not the condition that is here, okay? That, or that's not a condition that's being removed. Like all of a sudden, you're, I just want to make sure that I'm, 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 I'm presenting this clearly for you. 
the idea is that what is it that we hunger and thirst after? And he says, if it's righteousness, right, then you will be filled. So, this idea of being satisfied is, is to be fed, okay? So, when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we become satisfied, we become fulfilled, like we receive the thing that we want. So, if we're hungry and we're thirsty, we're actually receiving what it is that we are longing for. Let's go back to Matthew 23 here in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and uh, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So uh, mint and dill and cumin. Interesting, mint would have been an aroma right, the way that it was presented here. He says, you will even tithe of a smell. Dill and cumin would have been these seeds that were just teeny tiny. And he says, you will take the time to bring all of those seeds in and count out a tithe, 10% of them. So you'll sit there and count out every one so that you make sure you don't fall short in making a contribution to the kingdom of heaven, but you neglect the weightier things. And what are those weightier things? They are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, these are terms that are pretty uh, uh, weighty in our current uh, society, right? We, we see these being used a lot in politics. So I just want to break them down for us briefly here in the Greek. Uh, justice is a decision by tribunal for judgment, okay? So this is not just simply like looking at something and going, oh, this is bad. We ought to do something about it. When it's talking about justice, it is talking about a, a group of people coming together and bringing judgment. So giving to everyone what is their own, right? Not what isn't theirs, but what is there. It's making sure that they are protected. Mercy. This is, this, this is pretty interesting. Compassion or pity, Right? So it is a charitable behavior, and we're going to talk about mercy for just, in just a moment again, but this is, a, this is acknowledging, in order for me to have mercy on somebody, this is, it's a good word here, I have pity on them, right? What, do I, what does pity mean? It means that I recognize that I am at a position of blessing that they are not, okay? So I look at them and I think, man, I, I really pray that they will get to the place that I'm at. So I have pity on them because I see what God has done in my life, and I would long for God to do something in their lives. And then faithfulness here is belief, trust, fidelity. It's the root of why we do what we do. So when we talk about faithfulness, it is about being consistently committed to the cause. And so he says, you know, these are the three things that are really important in the law, and yet you guys don't take these seriously, but yet you'll sit down and take out a, a, an aroma, you'll take a, a, a bunch of tiny seeds, and, and you'll put on a show counting out, and look at my tithe, I've got my 10% right here, but in your daily life, the things that really are weighty and matter, you're not participating in. So what is he saying? He says, worthless are the outward observances when moral precepts are neglected. You can do the outward things. He's not condemning doing the outward things, but he says that they, they are worthless when we are not doing the inward work. So Jesus commends them for tithing with great detail. Jesus condemns them for lacking mercy. 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness are not fulfilled by a government. That's the other thing here. It's not a political movement that does it. Jesus says, whose responsibility is it? The children of God. So that, that burden sits on our shoulders. It should matter to us, right? Okay, so we should, we should care about these things as children of God. The church is called to be engaged in this conversation, not to hand it off to somebody else. Matthew 9, verse 13, listen to what it says. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so there is, he, he, there is a, 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 a comparison that he wants us to look at and try to understand the difference here between mercy and sacrifice, compassion versus sacrifice, pity versus sacrifice. And when we're talking about mercy, when we're talking about compassion, it is looking at somebody and going, man, they are in a tough place and I want to see them get to where I'm at. But when we talk about sacrifice, what we do is we look at what we have and say, I could give this up. And mercy is about helping somebody come out of the position that they're in, not giving them some resources so they can figure it out on their own. And sometimes we can be guilty of this, right? We can be guilty of looking at somebody and going, well, what they need is a meal. I'll give them a meal and I'll move on, right? But if I really want to have mercy on them, I want to engage in relationship with them. And I say this all the time, but this was a problem for the Roman Empire because the church did this so well, right? They were willing to bring people into their homes. They were willing to help move them from point A to B to C, to see their lives transformed. And, and, and Caesar's writing letters telling the governors and the kings, you need to start doing this because everybody's talking about these Christians and how they help everybody. You need to start helping them. And the, and the kings are writing letters back going, we can't do it. The people smell. We can't have them in our homes. Can you believe the Christians actually let them come in and spend the night in their homes? Like, this is disgusting, and so there's a call here to the weightier things that we are called to do, not somebody else. We are called to be the ones that are engaged in this. So what does he say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Can I tell you, we need mercy in our lives. If we are going to attain the position of righteousness to be in eternity with the King of Kings, I know he's looking at me with pity going, I got to help Jim get some things worked out. And so by being people who extend mercy, we become people who receive mercy. And so are we people who extend mercy? You see, the world censors thoughts hijacks emotions, mocks opinions, decries Christianity more and more. And we go through cycles. Like we can look back in history and go, there have been times when Christianity has been, Christians have been persecuted. There are parts of the world right now where real Christian persecution is happening, right? Christians are being killed for their faith. We live in a nation right now that, that every week you're hearing more and more of an outcry against Christianity and the things that the Bible teaches, right? That's not mercy. Here's what must happen. We must be more merciful than the world. You and I. Like as much as I want to play their game sometimes, right? Like I, I'll watch something and I'll think, man, I want to I I do what they've just done back to them, right? I don't know if you're ever like that, right? But I feel that way sometimes. I'm like, oh, I'd love to just teach them a lesson. 
But Jesus says, you should have pity on them. Now, I, just saying that probably upsets some of them, <laughs> right? Oh, man, I've got, I have pity on you. Don't you have pity on me? I know, but I still have pity on you. We just have got to be more merciful. We've got to be more compassionate than they are. Why? Well, hopefully we see transformation in their lives, but more importantly, we'll see transformation in our lives. More importantly, he'll have mercy on us. And so the person who cannot forgive will not be forgiven. And if you don't like that, don't worry. It's not my words. Those are Jesus's. You've got to learn to be able to forgive. You've got to be able to have mercy. You have got to be able to have compassion. And it's got to be more than just a sacrifice. I'm giving a portion of what I've got, and I could have, you know, gone and bought another thing with that, but I'm going to give it to No, no, no. It's got to be, I really want to see their lives transformed. Let's go back to the sermon, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. This terminology here, greed and self-indulgence, is pretty interesting. The spoils, the plunder, robbery. He says that you'll, you'll get yourself looking all great on the outside so everybody will see you as a good religious leader, but on the inside, you are stealing and robbing, right? Self-indulgence. You have a lack of restraint, and then go back over here to Matthew chapter 5 in, the, in his earlier sermon, and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Want to see God? Don't act like the blind Pharisees and the scribes who get out here and are, are acting one way on the outside, but are really, their lives are filled with greed and self-indulgence. Instead, we need to be pure in heart. Where does that begin? That begins right here on the inside with our motives, with our direction. It's humility. And this word pure is really simple. It is just clean. It is just clean. And how do we, how do we gain that, clean, that cleanliness, right? We begin with repentance, right? Father, I am sorry for what I have done. Let's go back to the sermon here, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So we move from one thought to the next. A spiritual counterfeit affects you, but a spiritual contaminant affects everyone. Having a, a filthy, dirty heart, man, that's something that you, that's, that's destroying you. But when you move from it just being right here inside of me to now I'm pouring that filth and trash out, I become a contaminant to everybody else. What, what is this? The image that he's using here is this idea of ceremonial uncleanness. So as the people were coming into Jerusalem, uh, if they actually themselves walked over a tomb, uh, they would have come in contact then with the remains of the dead, and so they would have been considered ceremonially unclean. And so they would take limestone, they would grind it up, and this was the idea of whitewashing, and so they would go to all the tombs in advance, and they would whitewash them so that as people were coming in, it would be very easy to tell that this is an area I do not need to walk through. And this was actually seen as being something that was beautiful to the people who were coming in, because it was as if they were able to see the difference between what was holy and what was unholy. 
holy. And he uses this analogy talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And he says that you present yourselves in a way that you stand out, that you present yourself as being separated from evil. And what do you do? You draw people into where you are at, and what you are actually doing is making them ceremonially unclean. Because your hypocrisy engages them to then live in hypocrisy. And so he's making this, this, this illustration that the truth is you're like the tombs that they're not supposed to walk over, but they're walking right over you. And what does he say? His, he says, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, hypocrisy, an actor under an assumed character playing a part. And what else? Lawlessness, disobedience, and wickedness. He says, this is what's actually inside of you, and it is putrid. It infects others. And so what is the opposite of lawlessness? It's peace. And go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? And this, this picture here of of a peacemaker is one who loves peace. And this is the peace found when identifying sin. So this is not the absence of conflict, okay? When it talks about peacemakers right here, it's actually talking about those that will identify that if I want peace that lasts in my life, I have to be separated from sin. If I want peace that lasts, I don't give the enemy an opportunity to be invading my land, right? I don't want an invasion. I don't want to think that some enemy is going to come off the shore of the, you know, of Tybee and make its way across the land here, right? We don't, we don't want to think about it. I was with the kids and, 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 you know, I've got three boys and so we have a lot of really like, uh, you know, video games and, you know, Call of Duty conversations. And my kids, my, my, my boys love to pretend like they're playing Halo or Star Wars or whatever, wherever we go, right? So, like, we can be inside of Home Depot and they're, like, blowing up stuff with fake guns. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, like, we were, one day we were at Plant Riverside standing out there on the river and one of the giant ships comes with all of the containers in it. And I was like, how crazy would it be if one of those was filled with soldiers and we didn't know it, right? And it came into the port and then it just unfolded and turrets came out and we had an invading army. Like that would be insane. It'd be like the plot of a movie, right? But nobody really wants that. We don't want that invasion because what happens? There's no peace in invasion. And so the, the, the peacemakers are those that go, hey man, this is where the enemy is at. Steer clear of it. You want peace in your life? You want everlasting peace? That's sin. I'm telling you, you'll go over there and it'll be like that scene in Pinocchio where they go to the island, right? And they're all having fun. And if you haven't seen that, I'm sorry. I, I think you have to be an adult now to watch it. Um, but you go over to, uh, to, 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 to the island uh, and everybody's over there having a good time. And, but it, what is actually happening is, is that they're all turning you, they're turning you into donkeys, right? I think it's what it was. And so it sounds like fun, but sin is destructive. And so the peacemaker is the one who goes, hey, that place looks like it's a good time, and it is for about five minutes, but the consequences are life-changing. I'm not talking about like, like, hey, you'll be feeling the consequences for a week or two. I'm talking about for the rest of your life, you're going to be facing the consequences. You're going to have to look your grandkids in the eyes and tell them that story. You don't want to go do that. 
verse 29, back in Matthew chapter 23 as we wrap up here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. I hope you're feeling this. Like Jesus is like, he's Adam right now, right? He's like, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is tough. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to tell you right now, if Jesus were looking me in the eyes and saying this, I would be repenting and trying to fix some things really quickly, right? But what does he say? He says, you are consumed. I want you to, this is so good. This is so good. I hope you're paying attention. He says, you are consumed with all of the mistakes your fathers made, right? And he says, but what are you? You are serpents. You're a brood of vipers. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Can I, can I just go ahead and just back up and tell you one more thing? Like, loving Jesus can come with some consequences of its own. Like, it, that you're, not, you're not jumping into, like, the safety zone, right? It's not a safe space to, to sometimes be a messenger of God, okay? All right? Some of these people died some pretty terrible deaths. Listen to what he says. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So, we do not repent for the sins of our ancestors because it prevents us from being aware of our own sins. Jeremiah says, man, and we talked about this, right? Jeremiah says, oh, you know, you guys are sitting here wanting to lament for the sins of your fathers. Do not do that. They are accountable for their own sins. And because you are consumed with the mistakes of the previous generations, you have become blind to your own mistakes. And you will be held accountable not for theirs, but for yours. Man, that's so relevant. It's so relevant that we need to learn how to manage ourselves before we try to sit here and look at what happened in the past and said, oh, how much better we are than them. They had the Messiah, the King of Kings, standing in front of them. And they wanted to kill him. And at the same time, walk around going, yeah, if I'd been alive then, it would have been totally different because I'm such a better person than my great-great-great-granddad who I never met was. You see, it's easy to identify the mistakes of the past. The Romans, the Bolsheviks, the Nazis, the Chinese Communist Party. And we can point and point and point and point. Man, there's a real caution there. What's happening in your home? What's happening in your life? And Jesus says, man, y'all are so consumed with how much better you are than the atrocities of the past that you do not realize you are about to murder God in the flesh. So what will be said of us if we are not aware of our own transgressions and do not take responsibility for them. This is a word for, for me. This is a word for, I believe, for my generation. This is a word I want my kids to have in their hearts. Listen, there have been some bad people that have done some bad things before you got here. You need to be a better 
person. Don't worry about what they did, right? We're going to make today a better day. And the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching a compliance to sin. We've got it all figured out because we're better than they were. What does that mean? Jesus says, you're still living in sin. So what are they teaching? They're teaching people to live in sin. We cannot be compliant to the world around us when it comes to things that stand against the word of God. So resistance to compliance brings persecution. That's a reality. Look, go back to this Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'll just point out here, it says, persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecution for anything other than the sake of God is not going to bring you the kingdom of heaven, right? So just because you don't like something and you take a stand against it and you're persecuted for it, that's not what Jesus is going, well, you were really persecuted because you, you stood up for okra farmers all over the country. And so I'm kingdom of heaven, here it comes. It's not what he says, and I'm not saying that okra farmers are not deserving of our affection, okay? I love some good okra. I'm from the South, right? Challenge made right now, somebody to bring okra next week. Bless the okra farmers. But being persecuted for every little thing, that's not what he says. He is very clear here. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. What is that? This, was, this blew my mind. Justified equity. Man, is this not a word that we just hear being used a lot right now, equity? And, and I'm like, okay, all right, got to be gentle here, got to be sympathetic because, you know, you get too countercultural and, and it, you can offend. But look at what it says here. Righteousness is this justified equity. This is what it says. Listen to this. It is that the only equity that exists is in Christ. You want equity? Jesus. That's it. There's no other equity. We're not all getting to the top of the mountain without Jesus. Well, I want us to get to the top of the mountain, but Jesus is the only one that can get us there. I can't do it for you. And I know you can't do it for me. And so righteousness, right, being righteous means that we are all receiving the same outcome. And it's the only time and the only place in the history of all things ever that it will exist will be when it comes to Jesus extending the right hand of fellowship to those who believe. And I can tell you, I'm an advocate for equity. I'm an advocate that everybody would know Jesus. What does he say there in that earlier sermon? Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Because... You're talking about me because you're serving me. He goes on, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you want to look at the prophets before you, right? And you would, instead of going, oh, I'd be a better person. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't kill them, right? Because that's exactly what he says the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. He says, you need to look at them and go, man, they, they were persecuted. I'm going to serve God even if it requires being persecuted. I'm good with that, right? Because in the end, for righteousness' sake, I will be found righteous before my king and step into eternity. So you, you say you would have treated the prophets different, but you now miss the Messiah who is now before you. You're missing it. Don't miss what God is doing right here, right now. 
And we'll wrap up here. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. How many times, he says, would I have brought you together to take care of you, to provide for you, and you were the ones that were resistant. I had the resources that you needed. I had the protection that you needed. And you stood there and said, I got this. I got this all figured out. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, where did we start? Day one, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who was crying it on the streets? It was the people that loved Jesus. But in the temple, in the place where the word was to be taught, it had not been declared. And so what is he prophesying? He says, my second coming, the second advent, it will be marked by the, by the, 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 the leaders, the Pharisees, right? Think about this. Who's he talking to? The Pharisees. Who became the platform for the Jewish faith following 70? There was uncontested Pharisees. To this day, it is a rabbi culture. And he says that it is within those Pharisees, within that group of people, you will come to understand who I am and you will declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there will be another triumphal entry. Jesus is coming back. And so we begin with Holy, we begin, we begin Holy Week with the people declaring, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we come to this place. Jesus prophesies the second advent will be marked by the religious leaders of Israel declaring, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Day four, we don't really know what happened here. Most scholars think that this was an exhausting period of time probably for Jesus coming in, the triumphal entry, going and chasing out the money changers and teaching this final sermon that we don't have any instruction on what happened on this day. So perhaps he rested because on day five, he goes into the upper room where he shares a final meal with those that are closest to him. Uh, we call this communion. We'll be doing this, like I said, online Friday. We're going to do it again here in, in the room on Easter Sunday. Day six, he's crucified. Day seven, he's placed into the tomb. And day eight, he is resurrected. And Jesus is alive. Jesus is returning. And I'm going to tell you, we will be declaring, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's stand to our feet as we close. This week, we are going to be focusing on the fact that Jesus paid an awful price, one that we deserved, and he is worthy. He is worthy of our attention. Not to be distracted by all the things that have come before us and all the things going on. Let us focus on him and declare him king. I want to pray for you, and uh, then we'll dismiss. If you need prayer in your life, prayer ministry team will be available in the back. If you're watching online and you need prayer, please let somebody in the chat know. We'd love to be in prayer with you. We take these prayers very seriously, and we have some exciting uh, things th that we're going to be presenting in the coming weeks about how we're really stepping this up and building a better network for prayer and connecting you guys uh, one to another. I'm, I'm really pumped about that, uh, but we take it seriously, so let us know what your prayer requests are. Uh, but let's go to the Lord right now and thank Him for His goodness. Father, we thank You. We thank You for sending Your Son to die on a cross to pay the price for our sins, for being so bold as to call out our own 
weaknesses, our own failures, and, 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 and also commending us when we do well. It's not just the negative. Lord, you weave in those things that we do good in the midst of it. And so, Lord, thank you for that. I pray that, that we would be pushed, that we would be drawn, that we would be pulled into whatever position that you would have for us, that we would be ready to share the gospel in season and out of season, that we would be ready to live it when it's easy and when it's difficult. Lord, that we would be a light in the darkness, a voice in the silence or in the midst of screaming and hollering, that we would be rational people for you. Help us to lead others to know you. Help us to refine our own lives. And this week, touch us and remind us that the sacrifice was because you love us. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. Guys, listen, don't miss next week, Easter Sunday. It's the easiest Sunday of the year to invite somebody to come to church, right? Because all you've got to do is go, it's Easter. Everybody goes to church on Easter, right? And then people will go, yeah, you're right, I'll go, right? And so if you believe that community and what's happening here could add value to their lives, invite people to come and show up and we will present the gospel next Sunday. We're gonna be talking about the cross and the resurrection and we're gonna be doing a pig picking on Easter Sunday. So be here with us. We love you guys. We'll see you online Friday and in person and online next Sunday. As always, go change your world.